Trade at Houseology is the supplier of choice for professionals seeking designer furniture, lighting and accessories. Saving you time spent on sourcing, admin and logistics so you can focus on creating beautiful interiors. Hello and welcome to the Interior Design Business, the monthly podcast produced by the Interior Design Community for the Interior Design Community. My name is Jeff Hayward and with my co-presenter Susie Rumble, Creative Director of Tasuta Interiors and past President of the British Institute of Interior Design, we look at the challenges faced by professional interior designers and provide advice on how to deal with them. We're joined every month by a special guest who can share their insights and expertise with you. Today we're looking at architects and interior designers. How do they get on? And if not, why not? Some architects are known to dismiss interior designers as mere cushion fluffers, while interior designers can see architects as patronising at best and bullying at worst. Do these views still hold sway today? Have designers and architects learned to collaborate effectively? And is there room in today's challenging construction industry for them both? Welcome to the interior design business. We're recording today in the very stylish and comfortable showroom surroundings of Modular Furniture Company, USM, in the heart of Farringdon in London. USM are one of the many excellent brands available from podcast supporter Trade at Houseology, so please check them out. And joining us on this podcast is our special guest, John Tian, director of the renowned firm Smallwood Architects, who for the past 40 years have specialized in creating residential spaces of the very highest quality. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to join you here today. John, before we start, would you mind just sharing some of your background with our listeners? Uh, I'm an architect. I uh, was an architect from the cradle, really. Um, I've grown up fascinated by buildings. My main interest and motivation from the start was historic buildings. And initially, I wanted to be a conservation architect, working with the wonderful historic buildings, particularly here in England. Um, I initially did a postgraduate year in Belgium, and then I came to work with quite a well-known conservation practice. Uh, I worked with them for seven years, but then realized that the topic was really quite dry and too technical for me, <laughs> and I longed for something a lot more creative, uh, at which point I met Christopher Smallwood, in fact in 1994, which is 25 years ago this year, and I found in him a creativity that I had found lacking elsewhere. And my mind was also drawn to his interiors bias, which was not usual in uh, my training, and I felt distinguished us and set us apart. Very good. And how would you describe the relationship between architects and interior designers? At times fractious, but it ought not to be. Uh, it ought to be a very good symbiotic relationship, I would say. Um, but I think when we understand the development of the interior designer, and how that profession has separated really from architecture because it has separated, it didn't exist in isolation. Um, it makes a lot more sense. There's no reason for architects not to feel complimented by a good interior designer. And equally, I think an interior designer should not be threatened by the burdens that an architect often carries in terms of getting a project to a stage where interior design can be a real component of it. Can you outline for us the history and the development of architecture as a profession? And do you think the role has changed? I, I absolutely do. I think uh, architects, when you look back even to Edwardian times, for example, somebody like Lutyens, when he would embark upon 
the design of a house. He was effectively the structural engineer, the services engineer. He was the principal designer. He was the interior designer. He was designing the lamp fittings. He was designing the, the foundation details, the door knobs, yes, the, choosing the, the colours. fittings. Uh, everything about it w was him. Uh, but he also relied on very expert builders who could fill in the gaps. There was a common language across the orders of architecture that was completely ingrained in people. So the three principal orders, Doric, Ionic and Corinthian, uh, translate from the great big columns down to uh, a family of mouldings that would be used in different ro rooms throughout a house according so to the hierarchy. So what you're saying is that a Doric room would have a particular door yes. architrave and a yes. particular skirting board and a particular form of cornice, for example. Exactly so. Um, so he could deal with that on that level and he was dealing with the plumbing which was a lot more simple, the structural engineering which he knew by training and so did the builder. So that was the reality for, for very many years. So the drawings that he was producing, by definition, therefore, did not have to be as detailed as the ones we produce today? They were enormously detailed in a way, but there was a whole background level that didn't have to be explained to the extent that we now have to. Mm. And I think that rather pertained until after the war. Mm. And since the war, with the increasing complexity of buildings, um, like every other profession, the medical profession, for example, you never go and see your GP to talk about a mole because he'll send you off to see a mole specialist. Now uh, the architect has in effect become a GP to an extent and there are all these sub-specializations of architecture at the same time as there's mechanical and structural engineers, there's services engineers of all kinds and then there's the interior designer. So the profession and the duties that we carry out have become very fragmented and tying them all together has in fact, I think, become the real challenge. Yeah, I mean, I think really the whole nose to tail thing is too big for one. It's almost too Absolutely. big a job. It really is. Which, is. which is how interior design as a profession has kind of grown out of, of what was traditionally done by the architect. So they both should be complementary? Well, they ought to be complementary, but there is a difficulty of mindset, I think particularly with the architect, because we come from a training that tells you you are the most important person in a project, you probably originate the design together with the client and as soon as you originate that design this baby that you've given birth to has lots and lots of siblings who are all desperate to steal a piece of it and perhaps claim credit for it but there is no reason for that not to be a collaborative process and indeed the process is going to be a lot better and the product is going to be a lot better if the right team delivers together. No, absolutely. How have interior designers evolved over the years? As, as buildings have become more complex the role of the architect became, and also partly due to the fact that buildings themselves, perhaps you might not agree with this, became less decorative. Modernism came to the fore and the interiors, the insides of buildings tended to be quite plain or the detailing was very spare. Um, there was a role that then evolved for people to perhaps come in and just do the furnishings and maybe some soft furnishings and perhaps some accessorising and art hangs and the dressing of the building, styling and so on and so forth. And those people today we would term decorators, but through the course of the 20th century as buildings became more and more complex, more and more stuff kept falling into the interior designer's pot until we got to the stage where we were actually doing things like moving non-structural walls around and having a major impact on lighting design and actually detailing out some of those things like the, the architraves and the skirting boards and the specifying the cornices and things. I think probably it started off in historic buildings. Again, you had the sort of the rise of the lady decorator who was a, a genteel woman normally of noble birth 
worth, who had lots of really rich friends living in stately piles, and she would go in and do the drawing rooms and the, you know, the, 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 the principal rooms in those houses. But, and there, there still is a sort of a tradition, and I think this is where the thing breaks down, that the, the new interior designers, the ones being trained today, are much more, John might shoot me down in flames at this point, what I would term almost interior architects, in the sense that we are doing I would agree with that. In fact, I've done some teaching at the KLC and the Inchbold and I was quite impressed at the training because my experience in dealing with many interior designers is those grand dames who would come in and swan around our office and speak very loudly to us in a posh voice. They knew best, whereas they had no real technical knowledge whatsoever. whatsoever. They had no interest in the difficulty of achieving what we need to get to. and. Uh, they were so imperious that they just traded by terror. And of, also, if you're doing interior, uh, interiors in historic buildings, quite often they didn't know what they were talking about, no. which is another source no. of enormous frustration. <laughs> no. Uh, but I was very impressed with the training uh, in those two colleges I saw and the rigour that people were being put through. It was really quite demanding and it was much more um, a, a good component of an architect's training than I had imagined. And I did develop a lot more respect for the new coterie coming through who have a genuine training, and I can see there is a complementary role. Yeah, so I think I think that's we would say the same that if I if I deal with architects like you, you have a clear understanding of what we do as a profession. But perhaps again, some of the older architects, the ones that are still sitting at drawing boards doing hand draws and you know yes. dictating to their secretaries, um, still have a, a, a misconception about what it is we actually do. And so there's this problem where they, they're loath to relinquish control because I suspect they feel that perhaps they would be relinquishing control to someone that wasn't capable of taking on the baton. Um, and yes. the interior designer on the other side is trying to wrest the baton away from them. I, I would also say I think there's a real sense at the moment that many architects have lost interest in interiors. Mm. The process is so complex that on a, even a private house, you may have been involved with the house for three or four years before construction happens. It's very hard to maintain momentum and interest in a project for that length of time. You're dealing with a planning process, which is exhausting and uh, bedeviling on many architects. You're dealing with a technical process of specifying the building and getting through tender. And you can retain focus, perhaps, on the key areas of a building, but to retain that interest right through the rigor of an entire building can be very difficult. And I actually think that many architects have lost interest. The blandness of so many interiors done by architects now is, I think, evidence of this just lack of interest now. The profession has become exhausted. And I think in a peculiar it's way... It's really that, interesting Well, I think it's, a, it's an opening for interior designers because you come in quite often at a later stage in a project, you bring fresh eyes, and you're going much more to the heart of the client and what the client is going to do in terms of use of the building. So I think you've nailed it. I think that's really the way I would see the difference between the two professions, yes. is that the architect is more concerned in many ways with the, the, the exterior shell and the arrangement of rooms and the way that shell sits in the, in the overall environment and the fact that the envelope of the building meets with all the, the environmental um, heat loss and everything Absolutely. else, all those controls yes. that we have to have. And then internally the um, systems that go into the building to actually run that building because 
once upon a time buildings were really very simple you know you had electricity and water coming and gas coming in and you had wastewater and yes that was it you know yes. going out and that was you know and the, the dimmer switch was as sophisticated as it got um, but these days when you have building management systems and you have to have plant rooms and there's so much of the stuff going on so the interior designer by contrast comes in and with and hopefully looking through the eyes of the client to see more specifically how they can really really use those spaces that the architect has created. But I, I would say, and this is the point of not where friction can be, but it does not have to be the case, because we have a different role. Fresh eyes coming in um, can be very strong, but we have to understand each other. And the interior designer needs the skills to undertake that role Absolutely. at the right moment. Yes. And I, I have often been disappointed in interior designers because they don't have the skills to undertake the role from the right moment. And a key distinguishing factor can often be joinery. There's the interior designers who can wave their arms and show a picture, but can't actually detail it. Yes. But they ought to be able to do that. Well, but then hopefully these new ones coming out of the I design think they, colleges they, they absolutely do. should be able to, because yes. it's, it's, something, it's something we do a lot of. But even if you take it back, see, I, I think I would probably slightly disagree, because I think interior designers do need to be involved very early on, even if it's only in the most peripheral way because sometimes if they've taken a brief from a client and the client you know for example that the client has a dining table they've inherited or um, yes. you know, needs to be able to do dinners for 12 or you know whatever it might happen to be or has a massive collection of yes. teapots that they need yes. to display yes then sometimes you can by by having taken that brief you can say to the architect you work with the architect and you say well actually is there any way we could make that dining room just another this is a point meter, I, I really agree meter, with you on and it's, it's come out of my experience which is when I came to Christopher Smallwood, um, he was really focused on the interior. And for the first time as an architect, he dragged me into thinking room by room how the furniture worked. Yes. Because you can't design the lighting without knowing where the furniture goes. Most architects don't think they about furniture. They still don't. You see, you're quite unique in that regard, I think. But most architects still do not think that but way. But I don't understand how you can design a room if you can't think about how it's furnished. No. But many okay. architects try to. And uh, you know, I've seen hotels with sort of triangular room, rooms. And how on earth do you put a bed and the side tables and everything else? But it's as if architects have a blank because there is a risk of abdicating completely to the interior designer, but an interior designer cannot design within a space that is fundamentally flawed. It is not flawed. fit for purpose, exactly right. So we would, we would argue that we would like to be involved right at the beginning, even if it's only just, yes. you know, as it, almost as a sort of filter for the client's brief. Yes. But to, it, back to the architect. And we need to know, are the curtains or not? Absolutely. Uh, you know, where will they and, tuck? And they? Exactly. Have you, have you left space for them to stack back? All yes. those sorts of things. And I think that's often, not so much in the UK, but I know I've seen it in the Middle East and places where architects design buildings where they, you know, wonderful sort of symmetry of windows and things with no thought whatsoever to how the outside structure relates to the inside partitions. Yes. So then you go into the internal room and you think, how on earth am I supposed to do something <laughs> about this? This is hopeless. Um, and the client's standing there with their hands going, what am I doing here? <laughs> anyway. You made the point that interior designers are often called in at a later stage on the project. Why? Well, choosing the right moment is an important one because the architect, being God by our training, <laughs> <laughs> does not want the idea diluted until the moment is right. Uh, equally, a good interior designer has a very strong impetus to get the interior right from the right moment. And there is a right moment, but I think it takes a lot of experience and intuition to get that but right. But I think if the architect is not understanding the role of the interior designer, Indeed. then the architect may not choose the right moment to call the interior designer in. 
Well, I think that's part of the, the usual answer I know is mm. that you come in too late. That was that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. We always we would generally genuinely say that yes. more often than not, it's like too late again. But yeah. I've seen the interior designer come in too early, and interior designers dictating everything when it hasn't there has not been enough time for the structure and the complicated brief of planning and everything else to really settle and they have caused great problems yes. to the project. No, I, I can that see can that happen. completely. I can see that. And you also raised the, the, the issue um, earlier about someone coming in and not being able to detail out joinery. Yes. And that's one of my kind of pet beefs, I suppose, on behalf of architects. And I, I, I can see completely why some architects detest interior designers because often the clients don't understand what's involved in getting from an idea to actually seeing it built. Yeah. They don't realise that someone has to produce detailed drawings. And so because we're all so eager to please, and I think architects and interior designers both tend to be too eager to please, the interior designer says, oh yes, I'll do that, then doesn't produce the goods. And the architect ends up stepping into the gap and doing it anyway, but the interior designer takes credit for it and the architect doesn't get paid for the extra work he's done. That's true. <laughs> that is true. And it's just, it's a real problem and I yes. have seen that. And then you, and so you know, you completely understand when you meet an architect and they're a little bit bruised when you say, you know, they yes. have that slightly querulous <laughs> yes. look about them and yes. their bottom lip trembles, poor things, when you introduce <laughs> yourself as the interior designer because you, you can see that they've been bitten in the past. So I think it's really down to the interior design profession to behave like a profession. Yes, I would really And, and put their agree. hand up and say they're not capable of doing something. Yes. I'm fascinated by that conversation when you're trying to define where the demarcation is yes. between the architect and the interior design because from what you're saying, it, it varies between architects. Some might be interested in interiors more than others. So yes. is that actually a conversation or is it just things being left so that others fill the space? I think it often comes down to a phone call. Uh, the client has begun to really understand, because we've been prompting them, that there needs to be an interiors contribution to this developing design. And they might ask, who would you recommend? And that is your one moment of power as an architect, <laughs> because you can suggest somebody whom you know, you already know your client quite well by this point, somebody whose taste is likely to be in sync with theirs, and then hopefully that new person comes in and you are working so comfortably together that you're singing from the same hymn sheet. You know, there's going to be frictions about things, but you know their capabilities, you know that they will be complementary to you, and you know that they won't fight against the already established design, frankly. But, but then often the architect will be brought in brought on board by the client and then the client will have their own interior designer and it may mm. be someone it may be someone who's a friend of theirs yes that you yes. have never met and you have no idea what their capabilities are yes. so so I think establishing I, I think I said to you on the phone John there's a I say there's a wiggly line that runs down the middle of any project in terms of establishing what side of that line yes. is the architect's responsibility what side of the line is the interior designer's responsibility and it will vary from project to project I mean, sometimes we get called in just to do finishing packages where yes. the architect has said that's a tiled floor, but they haven't said which tile. Yes. But with a structural engineer or an M&E engineer, the lines of demarcation it's are very much clear. clearer. It, and it, people have been working within those disciplines for so long that, um, and it's, for example, services have become so complicated. I, when a client asks about current heating things, I, I dare not e nearly answer because you know, what was yesterday's answer is no Absolutely. longer true. Absolutely, and you have to point the client at a good M&E person, who will, do. a mechanical and electrical specialist, who will pick up on all those technical systems mm. within, the, within the building. Mm. So do you think that perceptions from 
architects about interior designers is that changing do you think I think it does change when you come across somebody like Susie who is very professional in how they approach things and is very skilled that really matters I always retain (laughs) (laughs) I always retain a nervousness about some of the headline designers who because many of them don't really come from a strong professional training Uh, forgive me but many of them are ladies who have come from a decorating background or perhaps somewhere like Christie's or Sotheby's and they're socially well connected socially very well connected Uh, and this is this hobby of theirs has become a profession and they will add everything including project management to the list of what they might do when in fact they're incredibly naive about the process and they embed themselves too early into a, a complicated situation and can really unsettle things in my mind, I would categorise them in the American sense of decorator. Absolutely. No, this is what I always say. And I think yes. that's a very good yes. division. They would never allow themselves no. to be called that. So we, we keep saying, well, we've mentioned it several times over the podcast, but we, uh, we have a, the way we describe the difference between interior design and interior decoration to our clients yes. is that if you take a building, peel off the roof, turn it upside down and give it a huge shake, whatever falls out is yes. the decoration and whatever remains stuck to the building yes. is the interior design. Yes. So all those hard finishes and the, and the mouldings and the, the joinery and all those things we've been discussing are interior design, but the furniture and the art and the rugs and the lamps and the knickknacks are interior decoration. Yes, but I I would criticise interior designers for not defining well enough, more broadly I think to our public, where they come in and what they do. I think there's a vagueness that people have travelled quite well with to their own advantage sometimes. I think that's true. By not being clear. But architects, we struggle to finish. You know, uh, there is a point in a project when I really want to let go. I would rather not be engaged with the colour conversations. I'm too busy sorting out contractual issues with a contractor and making sure things are delivered. completion Yes, all of that. O&M manuals and so on and so forth. But I want to define where we stop, and I think you need to define where you start better. Mm. And I think that would be good for all of us. But I think with every project, that's just it should be a conversation that takes place between the architect and the interior designer yes. as yes. two professionals Absolutely. saying, OK, I'm going to do this bit. Yes. Are you happy with that? Yes. You know, do you want to retain ownership of this? Where are the areas where we should actually be working together? Yes. You know, because you'll have you'll have much more idea of what's going on in the structure of the building. Yes. If I'm trying to get lights into certain places and, you know, you're saying to me, well, there are concrete beams up there, that's not going to work, whatever it might be. Absolutely. It's taking ego out of the conversation. Absolutely. Yes. 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 Without question. Mm. And sometimes the architect is in the lead, and sometimes yes. the interior designer is imposed upon the architect yes. to be in the lead, and that's where the friction comes. But quite often you have two big egos, yes, mm. because the interior designer can be just as much of a, you know, a personality in inverted commas as the architect. That's really tricky to manage, and I've been there. Power struggle. <laughs> it really <laughs> is, and it's unhappy. really you know because the interior designer is trying to elbow yes. the architect out the door. Yes. And sometimes the architect goes, you know what, this is too much, I can't work, and they will turn around and, and vanish. And then the, the interior designer is rubbing their hands, going, "Ha ha, I got rid of him." It, it can become a tussle over the relationship with the client. With the client, exactly. And we had a, a very unfortunate situation on a project where a very complicated project after quite a few years, including several years on site, we suggested a quite high-profile interior designer who clung to the client and poisoned a very long-established relationship. We were aged out in the end, and he took all the credit. 
Oh, isn't that That can happen. Yes, it can. And it was a whole, it was so sad because it was a wonderful project, a great team, a great project, but this relationship at the core of it was soured. Just became toxic. And it soured everything. Yes. That can happen. Yeah. So that relationship uh, between interior designer and architect successfully with the client delivers a good project. But I think this is where you also have to be very clear when you set out your stall about what the pecking order is. Because yes. in any project you can only have one person, I mean obviously you'll both speak to the client, but there needs to be one person controlling the flow of information. And that's when it starts to go south, if you've got the architect issuing instructions and the interior designer issuing yes. instructions. Whereas what should really happen if the whoever is the lead designer, and normally it will be the architect if there are both people on the project, we would give our information to you and you would issue to the, to the relevant parties. The project equally could be divided mm. at that point. There could be a shell type thing where the architect stops but has a complete interface with the interior designer so we know where things will go to accord with the furniture layout and the joinery that might come later then that contract will end and a new contract led by the interior designer can, can come in and fit everything out. Uh, and that can be quite a good way of doing it. But that is hypothetical quite often and the reality is often a strong overlap. But I, I agree with Susie, somebody needs to be the key filter. The contractor is looking for one point of contact for instruction. The client should be used to that and uh, I would say the architect should do that. You might disagree on the last stage. but. To my mind, that's where it belongs. I think, although if, it's, if you're just down to the sort of the fit out, then perhaps the, uh, the interior designer could take it on. But uh, we need to be careful about making sure that our clients, because once the client becomes closely associated with the interior designer and they're forming a strong relationship of their own, if the client then says to the interior designer, I want X, and the interior designer just goes ahead and issues that instruction. So the interior designer needs to make sure he or she keeps saying to the client, no, I will tell the architect and the architect will issue those instructions. Yes. Mm. Otherwise, that way madness lies, you end up with clashes and you end up with situations where things have to be done twice. Um, the contractor obviously wants paying for things twice because he's done them twice. Who pays for that? Who picks that up? And then fingers become, fingers get pointed and you know, somebody will lose. And it's very rarely the client. Do clients play you off against each other? I think the reality is that clients don't really because they've hopefully chosen the right people. But it's more a sense that the architect and interior designer may find points of friction that can be creative and it can be less than creative on occasion. But uh, it's at the core of a good project how this relationship works, understanding each other or not. Yes, and I, I also think that there are sometimes though you get people who um, like to surround themselves with lots and lots of in inverted commas advisors. So you know, they'll be listening to the interior designer and they'll, well actually what happens is they don't listen to anyone, but um, they quite often they're not people from the UK, they'll be people that come from other parts of the world where um, their culture is to, if they're important, then they surround themselves with, yes. with lots of advisors. And so you'll have an architect and an interior designer who are kind of getting into, under each other's feet and the client's not listening to either of them. Um, and I think that can, be a, that can be a real issue. I had exactly that situation at the beginning of my career with Christopher. Uh, we were involved in quite a large country house and I was invited along as a quite junior architect really to hold Christopher's coattails and I arrived to this committee of taste that was processing... you weren't yet senior enough to hold the coat. No, I wasn't. I wasn't. Nor indeed to have a cup of coffee as I remember. But th there was such a grand retinue walking around the grand rooms of this house that the titled gentleman whose house it was I mistook for one of the underlings because the decorator was so grand. <laughs> you said he was the butler. <laughs> I thought he was the butler. <laughs> and in fact, I addressed him as such, which was a very bad 
mistake to make on your first job. Anyway, decorators and interior designers. <laughs> Getting the relationship right. Yes, it's no, always yeah, easy. <laughs> And you talked earlier about the training that architects have to go through. Do you want to just explain a little bit about that? And perhaps Susie can talk about the differences with interior designers. Architects have a long training and it's quite diverse. It takes seven years in total. There's five academic years and two years of practical training. Um, interior designers, on the other hand, have a quite a bit shorter training. And Susie, you'd be better to explain that. Well, I think, and also the other thing is that, that because architecture is a protected title, yes, and you all have to register with the architectural architects registration board, um, but with interior design A, it's not a protected title, so anyone can wake up in the morning. You know, I could wake up next. Well, somebody else could wake up. A lawyer, a city lawyer, could wake up next Tuesday and kind of go, "I feel like being an interior designer yes. today." Go off and get some business cards printed up, and lo and behold, they're an interior designer. And that that really is the worry that there aren't any stringent barriers for entry. Yes. to interior designers um, and so I think that and I think that's a problem I mean I, I do actually think that there, there should agree. be because I it is becoming more and more as the years go by a, a very serious profession and we have grave responsibilities in terms of safety and fire safety mm. and you know responsibilities to our clients to make sure that they're yes. safe and comfortable and responsibilities to the planet and everything else um, so I think the, the training that's out there now is far 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 better than it was we've yes. touched on that I think you know, the standard is being pushed and pushed all the time but I think because there is no uh, it isn't a protected title and there is no barrier to entry that's where the British Institute of Interior Design comes in because you become a registered interior designer with the British Institute if you've had more than six years of combined education and experience. And that means that people hiring someone from the BIID will know that, in theory, it's a safe pair of hands. Yes, yes. I, I wonder, the Americans have come to the title of interior architect. Again, unfortunately, it's a protected title yes. in Europe. Now, as we leave um, Europe, as we leave the EC, it may be that we will be allowed at some point in the future to call ourselves interior architects. Because personally, I think that's where we should be yes. heading. In fact, I would almost go back to the division. Decorators and interior architects might actually be better definitions mm. for many people's roles. Yeah, no, I would, I would agree with that too, actually. Yes. Within Smallwood, do you have interior design as, a, as an area of the business? No, we don't. But we do stretch, practice-wise, a lot more into the realm of interior design than most architects. Um, we would tend to go to the point of not choosing colours and fabrics or furniture and feel quite comfortable with that. But I know that many in the profession will shy much further back or than that. Or alternatively, lots of them in the profession now actually have interior design departments yes. within their practices. Yes. I mean, I remember um, having a meeting with Jane Duncan, who was... Yes. Yes. And she has a, a large interior design cohort within her practice. and. It's, I, I think, poss possibly because they, uh, architects have recognised that they can make a lot of money yes. doing interior design if they add that as a bolt-on service to their, to their range of services. And I, I don't know whether you know, but I'm on a, a, a committee that are, we're producing a new suite of contracts for interior design services oh, and good. architects, joint RIBA oh. and BIID, which will be coming out later this year. And that's been the most fascinating process to be part of because instead of the, the architects kind of sniffing at us and throwing us out the door as they would have a decade ago, they've really embraced the fact that they need to bring some of these um, procurement issues yes. in under their umbrella. 
That's really fascinating. I think that would be a, an amazing development and I'd really welcome that. In fact, the reason we don't have an interior design uh, angle to the practice is so many of our clients come bringing their own interior designer. And I think we have found it to be an advantage over the years that some, we will work with anybody. And I think we've become perhaps as a practice quite adept at finding that point where it's comfortable for both the interior designer and the architect. And sometimes that bar is very far up and sometimes it's quite low. Yes. And we have been everywhere in between. Yes, and it depends too. Sometimes the client will say, I want my interior designer to yes. do X. At which yes. point, you know, okay, you are doing the joinery. Yes. Which can be a bit sad. I well, think. it can be particularly sad if you've got a very carefully considered building with a carefully considered interiors and something very inferior <laughs> appears at yes. the end of the day. Yes. That can happen. Yeah. What about the male-female thing? Do you think that's a cause of friction between the two professions? I think less so. I think it was. It was. It was, without most doubt. definitely. Yes. The stereotype hangs in the air. Yes. And I think in certain quarters, well, as I know from going to interior design colleges, there are more women than there are men. Um, I think that's changing very rapidly. In architecture schools, it's changing very there rapidly. Are more women I think there are more yeah. women now yeah, than men. I think men. so too. I think um, so too. But still, when you go to site, the world is full of men. Yes. I mean, I'm used to going into these big design team meetings and being the only woman at, you know, yes. in a room of 16. There'll be 16 blokes at the table and me, which I quite like, actually. I don't, I don't mind that at all. <laughs> the, um, I was going to say, actually, it's interesting that in Japan, I've done a couple of trips to Japan and, in, and I we set up the BIID Japanese chapter. And so we have a lot of contact with interior designers in Japan and they have a really rough time because they're generally, they're called interior coordinators and they're all, there are no interior designers, they're all employed within architects practices. So again, and all the architects in Japan are men, hmm. almost almost to a, to a, a person. Um, and you'll have one poor beleaguered female <laughs> sitting in the corner who gets shouted at for not choosing the right tile. So it's just, it's a, it's a really sad world for them, I think. That's extraordinary. What one piece of advice would you have for an interior designer on how best to work with an architect? I would say for each of us, the architect and the interior d designer, with perhaps humility, and a, a much underused word, to define the limits of their role, very clearly. Yes, no, and I would agree with that. And then just to follow on from what John said, I think that the, my piece of advice would be to make sure that both the architect and the interior designer leave their ego at the front door because what you're there to do really is to get the best result for the client. So this is the part of the podcast where we like to ask our, our special guest, in this case John Tien, um, an awkward question. So John, what is the funniest experience you've ever had in working with an interior designer? I think the, the funniest was also slightly sad really, which was we did a very glamorous apartment in Mayfair for a client who were a, a well-to-do couple who invested in this beautiful apartment and had very high ambition for their own status to be illustrated by the finished interior. And we introduced a, a wonderful interior designer who bonded incredibly well and worked well with us, with the client, uh, particularly with the lady of the couple. And only at the very end of the project, when everything was looking perfect, show home spankingly beautiful. Sort of world of interiors, perfect. It yes. absolutely was the lady produced this chest of items and out popped this whole collection of her little pigs 
She was an avid collector of little pigs and had been terrified to tell anybody <laughs> that this was her long, lifelong passion. She'd been so overawed by the process and her show home that there was no place for little pigs. Little pigs? How many little pigs were there? I saw about 50. And, and what are we talking about? We're talking about... We're tiny little tiny, inch high Tiny, tiny little pigs. And I went back later to see little pigs scattered everywhere in this immaculate interior, <laughs> which was not meant for pigs. Oh dear, oh dear. Oh my. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you once again to USM for hosting our discussion today and thank you John for your fantastic contributions. The interior design business is available from audio on demand services everywhere and if you enjoy listening to the show then do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at IntDesignPod, Instagram and Facebook at Interior Design Business Pod and on LinkedIn at the Interior Design Business Podcast. We are brought to you with support from Trade at Houseology. This episode of the Interior Design Business is a Wildwood and Alfie Media production.